Well, good morning, everyone. Who all here enjoys looking forward to new movies that are coming out? Right? Who all sees a preview for a movie? And every so often, you know, you can ignore most of them because most of the stuff that comes out these days anyway is uh, really just not worth watching. But every so often, you see the trailer for a movie and you think, that looks great. I can't wait for that. And usually it's going to be, uh, the movie's going to be made by someone who, you know, usually makes pretty good movies. When I was younger, it, when I was younger, that's when the Star Wars prequel trilogy was coming out. And I just remember how excited. It seemed like the whole world was getting for it. A new trailer would drop for the movie, and we would see all the, the awesome things we could look forward to. And we were really excited because we really liked what had come before, Star Wars. So, but can anyone else relate to that? Or am I the only one in here who enjoys watching movies? <laughs> all right, I, I think we all know what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to say here. But there's something enjoyable about even just the anticipation, waiting for something to happen. You know that it's going to happen. Uh, you might, and you have some details on how it's going to happen, but part of it, uh, part of the excitement is just looking forward and waiting for that time to come. This morning, we're going to be looking a little bit ahead. Uh, this morning, we're going to be almost as if we're looking at a preview for something big that is going to take place. It's not quite there yet, but it's on the way. And we've been given the, the, the uh, early presentation on what exactly it's going to be. We're continuing our series on our uh, statement of faith. Uh, I'm continuing the point that Ned started last week on Jesus Christ. And I'll just read the entire statement, uh, that entire section of that statement, just so we uh, know what's going on. So Jesus Christ is true God and true man, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Further, he arose bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven. And that's about all the further we got last time. That's, uh, Ned took us that way. We looked at Jesus. We looked at who he is. We looked at what he has done. And this morning, we're going to continue. We're going to finish that statement up, up where, uh, and we continue reading, where, at the right hand of God the Father, he is now head of the church and intercedes for all believers. In the future, he will take the church, both the dead and living believers, to be with himself. Later, he will come to earth to establish his kingdom. So we can maybe divide it up this way in our minds. Last week, we looked at what Christ, who Christ is and what he has already done. And this week, we're going to look at what Christ is doing now and then what he is going to do in the future. So what Christ is doing now at present, and what he is doing in the future. And there are a number of passages that are quoting below, but as I was doing my study on this topic, there is one passage that just kept coming back throughout the study that's not found here, but I think really ties a lot of what we're going to talk about together. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And uh, we'll, of course, look at all the other passages that are mentioned here, but after reading this psalm and then looking at uh, all of these things that are 
in it, we can see Psalm 110 kind of as a, almost like that, that preview that I talked about before. You know, we have little glimpses, we get the broad strokes of what the story is going to be, and, uh, and it really just causes us to anticipate the things that are going to take place. So we'll read Psalm 10, we'll pray, and we will get right into our message. So Psalm 110, a psalm, uh, of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In the splendor of holiness, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youthfulness will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his anger. He will render justice among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will crush the head that is over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have together, this time to look into your word and this time to consider What Jesus is doing now, considering the fact that he is indeed risen from the dead, that he is indeed alive today, that he is indeed seated at your right hand. Uh, I'm thankful that you have given us this uh, information in your word. I pray that we would be blessed by the reading of it. I pray that we would live in light of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 110, while uh, not, in, uh, not one of the uh, passages referenced in the Statement of Faith, like I said, I think it really does tie a lot of what we're going to look at together. Uh, Psalm 110 is interesting. It's quoted 14 times throughout the New Testament. Uh, it's, I think it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So uh, if you wanted to make an argument that this is God's favorite psalm, well, that is some evidence that would be in its favor. Uh, uh, and it is an appropriate psalm for this subject at hand because this psalm really is about what Jesus is doing now and what he is going to do in the future. It speaks of Jesus being at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the Father, which is what we read in our statement. Uh, It speaks of his authority over all things. It speaks of his intercessory work as a high priest. So his work as a priest right now. It speaks of the destruction of his enemies, something that's going to ultimately take place. And it speaks of the subjection of all things under his feet. So uh, it, it does really encompass so much of what we're going to be looking at. So uh, back to our statement of faith. The section I'm starting off is, uh, He ascended into heaven where, at the right hand of the Father, He is now the head of the church and intercedes for all believers. And that's where Psalm uh, 110 starts, with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This speaks of where Jesus is now. 
The psalmist, when he wrote it, this was a prophetic psalm, so these are still future events, but at least this portion of the psalm is something that we can look back on and something that is taking place right now. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says this. Uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Ephesians 1, verse 18 through 21 The Apostle Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is a present reality. Jesus Christ, having ascended from the, uh, having risen from the dead and having ascended from the earth, is now currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's why in the book of Ephesians, uh, we can read, and we too are seated with him in the heavenly places. Uh, Christ presently seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Jesus is presently the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe ruling from his Father's right hand. We sometimes get the impression that uh, you know, we're, we're looking ahead to the coming of the kingdom of God. We're looking ahead to Christ's return here on this earth, are we not? Uh, we're gonna, and we're going to look more into that, right? But sometimes when we have this understanding, oh yes, Christ is going to come back, and we might think that, oh, but until he comes back, he, he's not quite yet ruling, he, he's going to rule in the future, but, but right now he, he's not. He's just, he's kind of waiting. He's, uh, he's sitting in the waiting room until the father says, okay, now you can go and rule. Well, that's not the reality that the scriptures present, right? Uh, we recognize, yes, Christ indeed is going to uh, return. Christ indeed is going to be present with us. Everything is going to be subject to him. Uh, but at the same time, he is the one who is the ruler over the universe. He right now is presently the king of kings and the lord of lords. And right now, all things are subject to him, ultimately. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and we went here several months ago, but we see the words of Jesus saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is not a single thing in this universe that Christ does not have absolute authority over. He claims ownership over everything. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, after Paul explaining the amazing reality of the incarnation, the fact that God became man, the fact that, uh, and the, the fact that he went to the cross and died and rose from the dead, he says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. He is the king. He is Lord of lords. And as we continue reading, we'll see that we'll see, we see the relationship that this king has with the church. So Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is now the head of the church. 
this uh, special body of people that are gathered together in the worship of Jesus. In Psalm 110, verse 3, just because we're going to continue reading this, we read, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. So speaking of his people coming together, volunteering freely in the day of his power. And I think we see that in the church. Uh, us who come together to worship the Lord. Uh, Jesus, yes, ruler of the universe, but ruler of the church. The church here on earth has a ruler, but it is not an earthly ruler. We don't look to a president or a pope or a bishop or a prophet or whoever else as the head of the church, right? Well, the head of the church is currently seated in the heavenly places with the Father, and we are subject to him. Yes, of course, we recognize that there are subordinates, there are elders, there are people whom God has given the church, but ultimately the buck stops at him. He is the ruler. As Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Earthly organizations have leaders and presidents who come and go. But the leader of the church is alive forever. And he is at the right hand of the Father, where he governs and guides the church with his word and with the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head, meaning that those who belong to him, his body, his church, find in him their direction and support and life. In Ephesians chapter 1, once again we read, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the ruler of the church, and as the ruler of the church, we see that Christ is presently building his church. Christ is at work, right? Uh, He's not just a foreign entity who really has nothing to do with us, but Christ is active here in the church today in building the church. What's something that we recognized at the beginning of the book of Acts? Uh, where Luke is writing, he's, and he referred to the gospel according to Luke as all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what's meant by that? That Jesus, throughout the book of Acts, is continuing to do and teach and to build his church. Jesus is at work in building his church today. We see the great confession uh, that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Uh, He says that I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Christ is building his church on the confession that Jesus is Lord, on the recognition of who he is, and that is something that he continues to do today. If you are one person who confesses Jesus as Lord, as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, Christ is building his church with even you. So we are all part of his church. He also is at work in building his church by pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people. That is what he does. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 uh, through 35 at Pentecost, we read Peter in his message say, This Jesus God raised from the dead, to which we are all witnesses. 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, he's mentioning that again, uh, and has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. So how do we know that Jesus is building his church? Well, because he is pouring out his Holy Spirit on his church. Uh, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's one of the 14 times it's quoted throughout the New Testament. Uh, And we also see that Christ is building his church through the means of using us as his representatives to proclaim the life-giving gospel. The Apostle Paul says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we have an active role in Christ's work of building the church right? We don't just sit back, but we get to participate. We get to work with Christ. Christ gets to work through us in building his church here on earth. So continuing on, uh, he is now the head of the church and he intercedes for all believers. That's in our statement of faith. So we're going to move on to that work of intercession that Christ is presently doing. And we see this again in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Christ is called a priest. He is called our high priest. Well, what exactly is a priest? A priest is a representative or a mediator between God and man. He is someone who can come and speak for God to mankind, to the people, and he is someone who can go represent mankind before God, right? Uh, There needs to be a priest, and Christ is that high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, he describes the office of a priest and the importance of a priest. He says, For every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So he's describing the work of the high priest of Israel. This is what the high priest does. He's taken from them Because if he's going to represent them, he must be from among them. Uh, He's appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. So he is uh, the representative of man before God. And what does this high priest do? He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. How is it that my sin can be done away with? Well, someone else needs to offer a sacrifice in that place. My high priest needs to do that. And that was the job of the high priest. 
And Jesus here is called a priest forever. He is called our high priest. So if Jesus is going to be the perfect mediator between God and man, he had to be both God and man. He had to be as we are. And Ned looked into that last week. We talked about the fact that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is also fully man. How is it that he can be my priest? Because he is as I am. How is it that he can be my priest before God? Because he is as God is. And the author of Hebrews goes on and he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, and there's that word that means a sacrifice that takes away wrath. He makes that sacrifice that takes away wrath for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we, if we, uh, we have this high priest, if we are to have peace with God forever, then we need a perfect mediator who lives forever. Right? If we're going to have peace with God forever, then we need a mediator for, who lives forever. That is why it is crucial that Jesus indeed lives forever. That's why it's crucial that he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the author of Hebrews says that the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So you can have an earthly priest but that priest can only do his work as long as he is alive. If that priest dies, he can no longer mediate between God and man. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues to live uh, forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I know that I can have a perfect mediator forever. I know that that's not going to fall away as soon as the priest dies, because the priest will not die. He lives forever, and therefore, I have that perfect mediation with God forever. And what else does the priest do? We saw it. The priest offers sacrifices, does he not? And Christ, as our high priest, offers a perfect sacrifice. If a priest is going to make satisfaction for the people, he must offer a perfect sacrifice. Continuing on in that section of Hebrews, we read, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered himself. The sacrifices of old fell short, right? Because they were offered by imperfect people, and they were imperfect sacrifices, the blood and bulls and goats can never take away sins. The priest can't live forever. So there needs, we need a better priest and we need a better sacrifice. And this perfect sacrifice offered by Christ is a sacrifice that perfects the, for all time those who have faith in him, as we read in, the, in Hebrews. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So think of the old priesthood, offering bulls and goats and whatever else there, there was. Those sacrifices can never take away sins because if a sacrifice is truly going to take away the wrath of God, that wrath must be carried out. And the wrath of God against mankind cannot be carried out on bulls and goats and whatever else. It must be carried out on man. And that is why that sacrifice is perfect. That is why it is truly propitiary. That is why it truly does take away sins because the wrath that is due to you and me, the wrath of God that is due to mankind is carried out on the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So, uh, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Perfect priest, perfect offering. That is what Christ has done, and that is what his mediating work is all about now. I can have a perfect mediator because he is as I am, and yet he is as God is. I can have a perfect mediator because he lives forever. I can have a perfect mediator because he has offered the perfect sacrifice. And because of that perfect sacrifice and intercessory work of Christ, there can be no charge laid against those who belong to him. That perfect high priestly work is complete. There's nothing that can take away from it. As the author, uh, or as uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, um, lost my place here, as he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You can't take away from that perfect work. There's nothing that needs to be added to that perfect work. And we can have perfect peace with God because of what Christ is doing now. Because our Savior is alive today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever as the high priest so, we've looked at what Christ is doing, his present work now, and now we're going to look at how this spills into the future, right? Uh, so, what is Christ doing now, and what is Christ going to do, right? So, we're going to start talking about the end times, and this is always a fun discussion. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, we get a, we get a pretty shocking picture of uh, some of the things that are going to take place. And this is one of the passages that's quoted in our statement of faith. Uh, we read in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus, at some point, will return. He is going to draw us, he will gather his people to himself, and he will carry out perfect judgment on the world. Like I'd said a couple Sundays ago, every single time we come together and take part in the Lord's Supper, we confess that Jesus is going to come again. Now, the issue, uh, one of the issues that we run into is uh, we don't know exactly when this is going to be, uh, right? In the book of Acts, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the, uh, the disciples are all excited about the things that are going to come, the things that are going to take place. And uh, they, uh, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, they say to him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because they know what the Old Testament says. They know what the word of God says regarding all these things. So is it now that you're going to come? Are you going to carry out that ultimate judgment that uh, is talked about? Is this now the day of the Lord? And then he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs by which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Man, do we not like that answer. And man, do we love to try to piece it together and find that time uh, that that is going to happen. But what does Jesus say? It is not for you to know. We do not know when Jesus will return. His return has been determined by God and it is something that will happen in his timing, not in ours. But until Christ returns, we are to be at work in carrying out his will here on earth. Because guess what? He's going to return at a time that we don't expect it. Uh, We cannot know when to expect him. But until he comes, he expects us to be at work. Want to know the best? Want to know one of the best ways to know when Jesus isn't going to return? Find the time that everyone expects him to return. And you can guarantee that, okay, he's not going to come at this time because he said it's going to come at a time when it's not expected. And Jesus uses this picture for us of uh, slaves in the house who are working while their master is away. He says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know the day in which your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, He would have been on the alert, and he would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think he will. So Jesus is coming. He's going to return. It's a certainty. And we need to be ready for that return. There's another picture in Scripture given of uh, a man who goes away on a journey, and he leaves the house in the charge of his servants. And he says, right, the, the expectation is that the house will be in order when the master gets back. And sometimes, I, I, I'm afraid, uh, in, in evangelicalism, uh, we get the idea that, well, you know, things are just, uh, we know from Scripture that things are going to get bad in the end, right? That's a reality. But uh, at the same time, we get the impression that, oh, 
I can't do it. I can't really do anything. I just have to really hunker down until Jesus comes, right? We have the idea that, oh, if I can just hide away in my little commune, or if I can just get away from all the bad things that are happening in the world uh, and, and wait for Jesus to come and everything will be better. Uh, it's, well, it's almost like the picture of a, a servant of the house where uh, he, he's in the house and then thieves break in and they start trashing the place and they set fire to the place and they're destroying the place and the little servant is just hiding away next to the door waiting for his master to come and then his master shows up and the, the, uh, the servant says, oh, I'm so glad you came, right? That's kind of the impression that we get. But Jesus expects us to be at work until he comes, Right? Jesus has given us the work of discipling the nations and teaching them to obey all that he commands until he comes. What does he say in Matthew 28? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So until he comes, we have work to do. The coming of Christ, yes, we can look forward to it as a great and glorious thing. It is an eminent thing. But until then, we should be at work. How do we want the master to find us? So, uh, continuing on, we read that Jesus is going to come. He is going to take his church to be with him to himself. So when that time comes, I don't know when it is. You don't know when it is. But when that time comes, there's some pretty astounding things that are going to happen. At some point in time, the living and the dead believers in Christ will be taken to be with him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he's talking about those saints who have passed away before the coming of the Lord. And the fear was, oh no, they died before the Lord's return. Are they going to be, are they going to be able to experience uh, his coming? Well, and Paul says, no, you should not grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." Whether we're alive for it, whether we're dead for it, we're all alive in Christ. We will all experience that glorious coming of Jesus. So if it comes in your lifetime, well, it doesn't really matter ultimately. It could, could come now. Wouldn't that be a glorious thing if, uh, if I didn't have to walk home from church because I'm taken home to, to heaven in the clouds? But if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm not going to miss out on anything. Because guess what? The dead in Christ will rise first. We're all going to be there together with those saints from ages past. Uh, we will all be taken to be with Christ. 
we're going to experience the same kind of resurrection and transformation that Jesus himself experienced ultimately at the resurrection, right? Uh, And again, I'm not going to draw up the big chart as to how all these events fit together and whatnot, but we do know that we will be raised from the dead as well. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal must, be put, must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we can look forward to being with Christ forever. Uh, What an amazing reality. So taken up to be with Christ. And then we read later, he will come to earth to establish his kingdom. Uh, Another impression that we can sometimes get is that, uh, well, when we go to heaven, we're just going to be we'll be floating around on clouds for the rest of eternity. Well, that's not the picture that Scripture gives us. Uh, Christ is not done with his creation. Following the resurrection comes the end, where Christ hands the kingdom over to the Father after abolishing all rule and authority. Uh, A little further back in 1 Corinthians from where I was just reading, the Apostle Paul tells us this, But each in his own order... Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the, Fa- God and, uh, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet." familiar psalm, right? It's no wonder that uh, uh, this uh, uh, came to mind. But, uh, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected, uh, that it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So ultimately, all things will be subjected to Christ. Christ will carry out, in part of this subjection, Christ is going to carry out his judgment on his enemies in this world. That's what we read. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses, and he will shatter the chief men over the broad country. So there is going to be a judgment to come for those who do not belong to Christ. That is a reality. Uh, But that judgment is Christ subjecting all things under himself. So judgment comes, and then Christ returns. And you can turn with me to the book of uh, Revelation. We'll spend the rest of our time there tonight, or this morning. Uh, The book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, and you'll notice if you have the statement of faith in front of you, that's one of the places that it refers to. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter. Uh, I won't have time. Uh, But we read in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we get a picture, we get a glimpse, we get a preview of what is to come. Verses 4 through 6, we read, 
Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who had also not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is where we get our understanding of the millennium, right? Uh, and like I said, not going to try to chart it all out for you how all this, this works. And, and if you do, you should do it in pencil because hindsight is always beneficial when it comes to understanding things like this. I, can, I look forward to having the perfect understanding of how this works after I've experienced it. But we do see that Christ is going to come and reign a thousand years. And afterwards, a final judgment is going to be carried out. When the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they will come to the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. And following that comes the great white throne of judgment. I saw a great white throne on him who sits upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire." And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So judgment, ultimate, final judgment is going to be carried out. The second death where all of Christ's enemies are put away forever. And then after that, all things are made new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All things are going to be made new. Creation itself is going to be made new. The Apostle Paul, and we were in this in our men's Bible study, says that creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So even this fallen creation 
that brings about thorns and thistles, disease and death, even this fallen creation will be made new just as we are. This is what we have to look forward to. These are the things that Christ is going to do. So, in conclusion, we discussed how, where Jesus at the right hand of the Father is now head of the church, now intercedes for all believers, and we discussed how in the future he will take his church, both the dead and the living believers, to be with himself, and later he will come to earth and establish his kingdom. We see where this is going. We see what Christ has done and how wonderful it is to be in him if you are in him. If you are not in him, there is a tremendous warning The ruler of the universe is alive today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is going to come, and he is going to come in judgment. But for those who belong to him, for those who have trusted in him, for those who have volunteered freely in the day of his power, what a glorious future that we have to look forward to, where God will dwell with men, where Christ will be living with us, and we will be with him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had to read your word, to consider the things that are and the things that are to come. We're thankful that you are the sovereign God over the universe, the sovereign God over time itself, and that uh, these things are uh, present even for you, and you can tell us about them even in this day as we are still looking forward to them. We're thankful that The Lord Jesus is seated at your right hand. We're thankful that we have that great high priest, the forgiveness of sins that is through his sacrifice. And we're thankful that he is going to come again uh, to us to take us to himself. Come, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.